Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 806. While you're turning there, uh, two other things have come to mind. Uh, One is there's a baptism next Sunday, and it will occur during the front part of this service, so I want to encourage you not to be late, um, because you're going to arrive to a large crowd and a a busy room, and you might not have a seat, that sort of thing. So that's next Sunday, uh, and it's always a great time, so it's a good time to bring friends to to watch and observe uh, that ordinance of the Lord. But also this week we're redoing the floors of the building. We do this every so we, uh, so often. So after this service, if there's some sturdy backs and uh, strong arms, I could remain and stack chairs. And usually somebody arises who knows what they're doing. Uh, but we just need unskilled labor, really is what we need. So that'd be great. It should only take about 10 minutes. Okay, um, this is... In the Bible study this past week, when we looked at this passage, this thought continued to kind of pass uh, across the table and certainly in the study, which is, man, there's simpler books than Romans. That's, that's what we, we, we felt saying is Romans, Paul works very carefully and meticulously uh, and beautifully, but not easily, to work out... Um, our understanding of salvation. And so when you start any argument uh, in Romans with Paul, when you're following the argument, as it goes, it's hard work, but it ends up at a place, a very familiar place. Um, it would be like if you went on vacation, uh, like in your young youthfulness, you went on vacation, you were going to walk up to the top of a mountain, There's the you could drive up that way, or you could hike up that way. Uh, He hikes up the path, and we get to the same place. It's just, whew, whew, you earned it. And um, there's a reason for this. It's one thing to be able to explain or talk about the faith in simple ways. It's another thing to be elementary in your faith. They're different things. You know, when we start off in the faith, we are simplistic, Real, true, to be truly able to make the complicated simple is a gift. Um, and it requires a great understanding. And so Paul's going to bring us through, I hope this is the goal, is Paul's going to walk us through kind of the hard path to the familiar place so that then we can begin to make simple in our lives, uh, make the faith simple for us, make it work. Because we don't want to be, we don't want to be a simpleton about uh, the, the work of God. We, we want to know it, but be able to share it simply. And Jesus shows this all the time for us when he says things. And sometimes he has such good humdingers in Scripture. You're like, how did he do that? Uh, when he says, a Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's simple to say. Man, that is just deep. Like, I am so grateful for some of those truths in my own life. Um... Or when he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. I mean, he had these pithy, simple ways out of tough spots that are brilliant. I mean, they're like crystal glass brilliant. When he said, all the laws and the prophets hang on the two commandments of love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. 
Jesus is not showing himself to be a simpleton. Jesus is saying, I have reached my arms all the way around the truth of God, and I know it all. And so I can say it simply. And that's what we want to be. I'll give you one more example. Uh, and my uh, more earthy example, in my own life, when I was learning to fly, you'd get a new airplane, and every airplane has certain systems in it. Electrical system, hydraulic system, flight control system. And they're connected at some point. Uh, but there are also systems, like in your own body, your skeletal system, uh, your breathing. I don't know the words. So I'm not a doctor. Everybody else knows the words, apparently. Uh, but you have these systems. Now, when you're flying and something goes wrong with one of these systems, you can't really pull over and fix them. Um, so, like, I don't need to know how to build the system, but nonetheless, we went through serious academics about these systems. The hydraulic system, you, you had to be able to draw out the schematics. Draw, you had to know, you know, the check valve is upstream of this reservoir and downstream of that pump. You had to know those things. You had to appreciate that if you had a right AC bus failure, what instrumentation was going to be compromised? Because when you're flying, all you ever get to see is the subtle manifestations of these deep problems going on way back behind you. And you had to be able to figure out what is really going wrong. Is this an electric problem or have I lost an engine or what's happening? What's happening? So you'd go through all of this academics and all of the, you'd tour the airplane and you'd go through, have these instructions and tests and checklists and simulations. But invariably what happens is things boil down to some rule of thumb cultural expression that pretty much fixes everything. Like take two of these and call me in the morning or rub some dirt in it. We had those things, which no matter, you know, you'd have your electrical problem or your fuel problem, and I just knew the fuel problem. I turned something on before I turned something off. And that, I know it doesn't make sense to you, but it was a, it got simple, that's what I'm saying. At the end of the day, operating it got simple again. But the only way that that simple thing was useful was by the fact that I understood the system. And that's what Romans is. Romans is an invitation to the church to understand the system of the faith so that then we can appropriately be simple. That's what we're doing. Okay. Verse 12 begins with a word, and the word's therefore, which means in light of what's just been said, which is what we talked about last week. Paul is saying, in light of what I just said to you, And he's going to go on to expound upon a certain idea. But this is what he just said. This is what we talked about last week. He said this. We have two hopes. We have two reasons to rejoice in this life. One, that since we've been, the word is justified, he uses. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was chapter 5, verse 1. Meaning, that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through him paying for our sin, we have great cause for joy. Because we can receive, we can receive forgiveness by faith. And by faith, we can be seen as righteous. That's the beauty, is you don't have to be righteous. God will choose to call you righteous because his son has done a great and wonderful work for you. And it was done while you were yet a sinner. While you were not even asking, it was done for you. That's the cause of our first great hope. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. 
And we will be seen as righteous before the Lord because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we have access to that hope by faith. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 2, though, says there's another reason for joy. He says, also, but also, by the same faith, through the same Christ, we've been given access to a grace in which we stand now. So that we're not simply people waiting one day, saying one day when we die, we'll have peace with God. He's saying there's a greater hope, there's an additional hope, and the hope is right now, you can feel and experience the love of God in your life because love, is. this is verse 5, is being poured out for you and the Spirit of God is being put in you so that we don't simply rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's how the second verse ends. But he says, but also in the verse, third verse, we rejoice now in our suffering because we know that God is in our suffering with us, working with us to do good things. That's, that's the joy we have. We have this twofold joy, this twofold hope comes by the same faith in the same Christ. And last week, verses 6 to 11 just worked to kind of blow that up big, to doubly encourage you. I think, I think Paul knows that in our minds, there's still something that goes, no. But I sinned. Like to the right heart, to the heart that has the right disposition towards the Lord, which we talked about that. The faith is the correct disposition towards the Lord. Another way of thinking about it is a pleasing posture before the Lord, that when we adopt before the Lord this knowledge of what we've done, what we've done to, to him and against others, and then we hear a good news message, sometimes it's hard to, there's a, there's a nah in our spirit. And so Paul gives us 6 to 11 to say, be confident. How much more has he done for you? How much more does he love you? How much more will he in this life show his love for you? Because he's already saved you from, for, for the next life. And then we get to the 12th verse where he says, therefore. And I think what he's about to anticipate is, he's anticipating in this question, this question. How much grace is there really? How much grace is there really for us, for you? So you, you, in your sinfulness, the Lord speaks a good word over you. Rejoice because peace has been forged through my son for you, which you can receive by faith. You go, okay. And he says, further rejoice because I have grace now for you in which to stand. So I will not leave you in hardship, but rather I'm with you in hardship to make you more of who I want you to be. Have joy. And you say, okay, I do that. And then you're encouraging that joy. And then you mess up again. You sin again. You backslide again. You trip up again or whatever. The sin, the old man shows itself. Spirit in the flesh and the flesh wins. How, how, how much grace is there? How much grace is there, really? Or if you're not yet in the faith, this is, might be how you word this question. Because I've, I've, I've visited with people before who are not yet in the faith, and they'll say something like this. You may have heard this, this, but if you only knew what I've really done, this would not be for me. Like, your message is for the good people of the church, as though we're good, right? But sometimes they don't come through this door because they think that. 
So there's, there's a host outside thinking, thinking, I understand that Jesus died for the good people, but how could he have died for me? That's another way of saying how much grace is there really? How much grace is there? So inside the church, there's this thought of, is he going to forgive me again? Some of you have actually done the math of 70 times 7 to wonder, if I, have I reached the limit? This is, the, this is Paul's way of saying, I just want to talk to you. Paul's writing to the letter saying, I want to tell you how much grace there is in Jesus. I want to tell you, this is what he says. Just as sin came into the world, this is the 12th verse, through one man and death through sin, and, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what Paul's going to do, he wants to tell you how much grace there is in Jesus. He wants to first tell you how big the problem is. Okay? So that you... First of all, you stop thinking that the weight of your sin is of any real consequence. Adam, Paul says, really, this is the problem of sin, if we're going to talk about sin and how much grace there really is, we need to go all the way back to Adam and talk about sinfulness of the earth. So the work of Christ, already, the, even the way he's approaching this question, puts your problem in pretty big, pretty small context. He says, how much grace is there? Well, let's see. He says, sin starts with Adam. He says, sin entered the world through Adam, and through that sin, death. Likewise, all people die because all people sinned. So in order to talk about the grace of God, he says, well, let's start to talk about the problem. And the problem is universal. There is a universal problem of sin. Everyone has it. Everyone is equally infected by the pandemic of sin. It was a weapon of biological warfare that we created, applied, that Adam applied to himself. It is 100% contagious, and it is 100% fatal. It's everywhere. You could get in an airplane or a train or a boat and go to a distant land that has never seen, never seen a foreigner, go in there and find out that tuberculosis hasn't reached them, smallpox hasn't reached them, polio hasn't reached them, AIDS hasn't reached them, but the disease of sin and death has reached them. It has us all. This is the way Paul starts. He says, okay, if we're going to talk about how big the grace of God is, you need to know how big the problem of sin is. And then he moves into verse 13. 13 and 14 are, may seem technical to us here in light of the larger scripture, the larger book of Romans. It's been a continuous conversation, but this is what he says. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. He's saying sin's been around since Adam, even though the law didn't show up until Moses. Sin was around. And he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here's the hard work. I know we're off, we're off the road here. But what, what Paul is basically saying is, sin has been around since Adam. You don't need a law to point it out. The, the conversation that was going on earlier in the scriptures is Paul was saying, because the people who said, but we have the law, we have the law, they were justifying their righteousness by the law. Paul said, ha, ah, the law, a pox upon you for having the law. Because when you have the law, you super expose your sinfulness and you still can't follow it. So he said the role that the law ends up playing in your life is to heap indictment upon indictment because you can't follow the law. 
See, he was turning to people saying, you think you're righteous because you have the law, but you're actually more unrighteous because you have it and you've violated the law. So now he's anticipating their backwards argument to him of, well, what about the people who don't have the law? Are they sinful? And he's saying, listen, sin is there even when there is no law. It's just not accountable. It's not, we can't account for it in our human sort of way, but God knows. God knows the heart. What did he say to Cain? There was obviously no law with Cain, but the Lord comes to Cain and says, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door like a tiger. He's wanting to have you, prowling for you. Fight it, Cain. Why? Because sin is alive before the law. It would be like if I pulled up all the speed limit signs on the way here and every one of you just tore out of here, zipped home, busted into cars and buildings. And you'd say, well, there's no speed limit sign. Would that fool the Lord? The Lord would say, you have a reckless heart. And I see it. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying sinfulness is alive and well and kicking in all of us, even when we don't know the rules. Sometimes this is a, a dysfunctional parent technique. A parent wanting to raise a child to be good will sometimes make them appear good by placing them in a ruleless environment. So they're not actually rebelling. So the parent hovers around the child, and if the child's going to go that way, they open all the doors they can that way. And the child's going back, oh, okay, let's give them every opportunity this way. The child's going, and me, the child is a lawless. The child is a wild ruffian. But the parents are creating access so that the child's never being, ex- his unrighteousness is never being exposed. You know, Tommy takes little Sarah's toy, and how does the parent deal with it? They dangle a better toy in front of Tommy. So he thoughtlessly drops that toy and goes to this one. Well, did you just foster obedience? No, you just fed selfishness. That's, Paul is saying, you can't fool God. Even when there's no rule, we heap sin upon itself. And then he, at the end, says this. And that's how it is with Adam. And Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Adam's a type of the one who is to come. So he's saying Jesus is like Adam. Now in a moment he's going to say, now here's how Jesus is not like Adam. But, but what he means is, you see how Adam, is, the effects of Adam, the actions of Adam have a universal consequence. Adam does something and through Adam, therefore mankind, the, the word there is all men is anthropoi, all people. All people endure the same consequences. Adam was sinful, we're sinful. Adam died, we die. Through Adam it happens. We also repeat what Adam did and it continues to happen to us. There's this continuity of mankind that's reflected in Adam. He's saying, Adam's a type. And the one to come reflect, has this universal reflection. Okay? And then he begins to say, but wait, not in exactly the same way all the time. You want to know how much grace there is? Listen to 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more... Have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. 
So Adam, Jesus is a type of Christ, but the gift is not like the sin. He's saying, if you look at the damage the sin did, the cure is much better. That's, that's the nature here. Much more, he says. Much more has the gift of grace abounded for the many. There's this, the many there is a universal expression, right? Because obviously the many, being all, have sinned. And he's saying, likewise, the gift of grace is extended to the many. But the gift of grace is greater than the trespass. A parable, this will make me make it feel simple, more simple for a second. The parable of the prodigal son, uh, it surfaces to mind as, as this story, uh, the, or the kind of story that would sit on top of this teaching. Son says to his father, this is in Luke 15, son says to his father, give me my inheritance now that I might have it. So the father disperses his inheritance to it's the younger brother, the younger son. He gives the younger son his inheritance, and that young son goes to a distant land, it says. Jesus says he goes to a distant land, indulges himself in wild living and sinful dissipation. And then a terrible famine hits. And the young man had squandered unwisely all of his money in sin, and now finds himself with nothing and no friends. And so he finds himself at last working on a pig farm, starving, desiring to eat the very food he's required to give to the pigs. He says, all what I would do to have their meal. He's absolutely unloved, absolutely unprovided for, absolutely sitting in the mud and muck of his sinfulness, his sinful decision. And he says this to himself, oh, I have sinned against heaven and against my father. And he says, my father, my father treats his servants better than this. If I, were to even, if I were to go back on my hands and knees before my father and say, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, would you take me back as a slave and I will work for you? He's, he's got this hope, right? That would be equivalent in his mind. That would be the equivalent gift of the gift and the trespass. But the gift is not like the trespass. Because when the son goes home and the father sees him at a distance, he says he has compassion. And the father runs to the son, not the son of the father. The father runs to the son. And the father, it says, he runs to him, he embraces him, he kisses him. And then he does this thing. Then he puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He utterly restores him. And then he kills the fatted calf and they celebrate. That's how the gift is not like the trespass. We're not simply getting back to net zero with the Lord. We're fine. You're back in the house. We are being embraced by the Father. The gift is not like the... How much grace is there? Well, let's just say, first of all, the grace of Jesus is not like the trespass. It's way better than the trespass is, okay? 16, and the free gift. Once again, this is how Jesus is not like Adam. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, the work of Jesus Christ didn't simply stem the tide of Adam. It's not like Jesus meets Adam. It's there's Adam and then all of the little Adams that have come out, all of the hosts of the anthropoi of all of us, all peoples, everywhere, all of their sin, the gift atones for all of it. It has the power to account for all of it. So it's not like, I'll see your Adam with a Jesus. It's, I'll see your Adam and raise you, Jesus. That's what it is. 
Because it's not just Adam's sin. It's Cain and Abel's sin. It's Lamech's sin. It's Noah's sin. It's Abram's sin. It's Isaac's sin. It's Jacob's sin. It's sin upon sin upon sin upon sin upon generation after generation. Thousands and thousands of years heaped upon one another of sin. The gift is not like the trespass. And he does it again. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace of the free gift of righteousness reign and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So if sin reigned, does life now reign? No. How much more, he says. You see, Paul is intent on you not simply drawing a line through sin as though it's been dealt with. He says much more than that. Much more than that has been dealt with. How much more? Eighteen and nineteen bring it to its logical conclusion, which is it may feel troubling for some. I'll, I'll bail you out in a second. But eighteen, I'll just read eighteen and nineteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, there's a momentary pause in many of us who are thinking, was this teaching universalism? Is is the Bible, is Paul here saying that Jesus has effectually died for every certain person, everybody just automatically goes to heaven? I'd say absolutely not. He's not saying that. His words here are simply headed towards one idea and they could be misconstrued that way. Certainly not if you read the whole book of Romans. Romans 1 through 4 is about the desperation of our sin and the absolute soul necessity of faith. So if you're reading this letter as though it was a letter, this would not trip us up. But when it's taken, just kind of isolated out, like if we put a syringe and pulled this out, you could go, ha ha, he's a universalist. But he's not. What he's talking about, he's not talking about the universal reception of the gift of God. He's talking about the universal offering of the gift of God, the universal power of the gift of God. In other words, what Paul's saying is, is there is not a square foot on this planet where sin ultimately has the right to reign, that the gift of God desires and has the power to fully extend to every single person on the face of the earth that ever was and that it ever is and that will ever come. It's universal. It's ability, Christ's ability. That, in other words, when the one millionth person gets into heaven, there's not going to be somebody who's going to have to turn the open sign to close and say, we're all out of grace. We've run out. That's unbiblical. He's saying there is no place that sin has taken effect where the power of Jesus cannot have much more resounding effect. That's what he, this is why... Jesus says, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Why? Because the grace of God is powerful enough to extend to the ends of the earth. This is why the Lord says, go, make disciples of all nations. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. It is more than sufficient for all nations. That's why. That's what he's saying here. He'll say it in 20 one more time. I mean, he's like, he said the same thing. You might be saying, it sounds like he's saying a twist on the same thing a bunch of times. That's right. That's like a teacher repeating the same thing for the student. 
How much more grace is there than your sin? 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We talked about that early, right? The law is a gift to us because when the law begins to be applied to our life, we see that we are not law keepers, but rather law breakers. This is the earlier part of this book. And that has the hopeful effect of then bending our disposition back towards the Lord. And so he's saying, now you see that the law came in so as to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is every case where you see that sin increased, grace is right there. The Greek is to superabound, to superabound. Charles Spurgeon used to say where grace abounded, sin did much more abound. Everywhere you look, where sin is abounding in your life, you know, you know, you can turn to the Lord and the Lord will say, my grace has much more abounded for you. Everywhere that happens. You might say to me, well, wait a second. So are you saying that people who sin more get more grace? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what the older brother said, isn't it? The prodigal son. The older brother looks over and sees that he's out working in the field. So even the presentation Christ gives us in the parable says, like, he had this righteous son working away, you know, digging the ditch for his father, doing whatever it is. He sees raucous celebration off in the distance. <laughs> right? And then he finds out it's because his lame punk sinful brother is back. We have this subtle thinking that the grace of God is being held in store for those who deserve it. That's not grace. That is heresy. Grace is a gift, which means it's always wasted on us. Who earns it? Can you honestly think that you're deserving of the grace of God? Then what then is it? You need to go find a new word. Grace is undeserved. Meaning there's nothing that I know of in the mind of God that says, well, the grace is better applied there because he'll ultimately earn it. Grace superabounds wherever there's sin. But the older brother is sitting there going, wait, he did all of this wrong. He did all of this sin. And you just show up and you forgive it like he's one of the sheep that have come home. I mean, what, what am I doing all the time just obeying, obeying, obeying when you just dote grace all over him? Is the point of the parable that the father goes, you're right, oldest son. You got it exactly right. Is that the point? It, the point is, son, my grace superabounds for you just like it superabounds for him. Cannot our security as humans to be that we are always beneath the saving um, umbrella of the superabundance of grace? Isn't that enough? That certainly, certainly, as we turn, right, because chapter 6 is going to begin to lean now into how we therefore then live. If we're going to now begin to say, well, how then we should live, it's very important for the believer to know that the manner in which, the motivation in which I live my life is dependent upon my confidence in the grace of God. Because otherwise, I'll begin to slave away so that I get his love, which is not what the Bible says is happening. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he's doted on us the superabounding grace that exceeds anything that we could ever do. 
from that, we, our motivation comes to do good works. So some of you might say, well, then why not just keep on sinning? Like, if I get grace, if, actually, if I get more grace when I sin, why not heap up sin so that I heap up grace? And I'll say, that's next week. It's actually, look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? And are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. So we'll get there. But the answer is no. The question is, how much grace is there? And there is much more than you need. Much more than you could ask or imagine. If you're outside, if you're outside of church and you're thinking, well, it's good for them, but if they knew what I had done, I'm here to call that out. First of all, you're hardly any different than the people in this room. Secondly, he's done much more than you can imagine. And if you're in the faith wondering, how long can I, will he forgive me? I would say, Focus on your disposition towards the Lord and your posture before the Lord and be of good cheer because where your sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Amen. Let me pray, Lord. I do pray this morning a gift of grace for the church uh, that we would be to stand tall in the knowledge of your love and the implications of that, Lord, that we're not sitting in an impending moment of slipping from grace into justice. Lord, that's why we have joy. Father, now that you, for those of us who trust in you, who have faith in you, who lean on you, whose disposition is turned to you, whose part posture is bowing before you, for those of us who want you, Lord, we understand it's for those of us who want you, for those of us who want you, I pray, I pray a spiritual confidence in your love that allows us to then go on to do good works. Because you love us, not so that you love us, but because you love us. And Lord, I, I, I pray into each person here, Lord, I pray that you would encounter them. Each, for those people here who have subtly been serving the Lord, thinking of themselves as a servant, Lord, I confess this even of my own heart, Lord, that I see myself as servant far easier than I do as son. Lord, that you give me a gift and then I work now. I work and toil and work and toil so that I might be seen as approving or gain your approval, Lord. I pray that... I would, we, we would be seen as sons of your love, enfolded by your arms, hugged, kissed, clothed, celebrated. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.